Uh, well, good morning. Welcome this morning. If you're new, my name is Jonathan. I am the lead pastor here at Ridge Church. Glad that you're joining us. Uh, today we're beginning the first of a four-part series about uh, relationships. And relationships, whether they're, you know, dating or marriage or family or friendship, these are like a big deal, right? Because, because the relationships are, that we have are the source of some of the highest highs that we experience, but also some of the lowest lows. If our relationships are going good, I mean, that's, that's just happiness and joy and laughter and healing and hope in our life is so good. And yet if they're going bad, I mean, that brings the, the, that become the source of some of the greatest pain and the deepest sorrows in our lives. And so we're going to spend a couple of weeks talking all about relationships. And in particular, we're going to spend a fair bit of time talking about marriage. Because, of course, marriage is one of the most profound and deepest relationships we have. It is the source, again, of some of the, the greatest power and beauty in our lives, but also can be the source of some of the most challenging hardship and pain and in our life and sometimes one of the most complex relationships that we have. But, of course, not everyone is married. In fact, statistics show that for the first time in North America, North America, Statistics show that there are actually more people now who identify as single than do as married. And that's for a variety of reasons. People who simply haven't gotten married yet, others who are divorced or, or widowed, those who just never did get married or haven't married yet in their life. I mean, there's just a lot of people in our culture and in our society who are single. And so as we talk about marriage, we're still going to talk about what it means to be single and have these kinds of relationships as well. Uh, the, the Bible has a lot to say about relationships. And the place to begin when it comes to what the Bible says about relationships is at the beginning. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, it tells the story of creation. It tells us that, that God created the heavens and the earth and that he separated the darkness from the light and, and that he created the land and the seas and then he created the, the plants and the, and the vegetables and, and then he uh, created the sun, moon and the stars and then the animals and finally... Finally, at the, the pinnacle of creation, he created the first human being. He created Adam. And as you read through that, that chapter, over and over again, there's this refrain, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good. But when you come to chapter 2, it turns out that there's something that is not good. And, and this is what it says. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. Now, why does he say this? Well, because it turns out that God created humans in his image, meaning that we're meant to mirror and to mimic God in the world around us. And God himself is not alone. In fact, back in, in Genesis 1, when he was creating humans, here's what he says. He says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Who's God talking to here? Well, it turns out he's talking to himself. Now, we don't get the full picture of that until Jesus comes on the scene and reveals to us that, 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 that God is a triune God. That there's three, three persons in the Godhead. There's God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Which means that, that God has eternally been in, in this relationship with himself. This beautiful, life-giving, uh, ongoing relationship. And because he created us in his image. It means that we are created for relationships too. We, we need them. We long for them. You know, sometimes people say, well, all you need is God. You know, you just need God. 
which sounds good. It's a great lyric in a worship song somewhere, but it's actually not true. You know, Adam, Adam, when God says it's not good for him to be alone, at this point, he is without sin. He is in paradise. I mean, everything is beautiful and perfect and good, and he has direct access to God whenever he wants. And yet it's God who says it's not good to be alone. And so God creates for him a partner. He creates for him a woman, and, and the first marriage takes place to fulfill this, this longing for relationship. Now, before we get talking about all that marriage, let me just say again that, that it is not necessary to be married to have deep, meaningful, fulfilling relationships. I mean, if you look through Christian history, there are all kinds of beautiful tradition of people who were single and who had full, deep, meaningful relationships and lived full, beautiful lives. In fact, the ultimate example of that is Jesus himself. Right? I mean, Jesus never got married and yet had these rich relationships with all these guys and deep relationships with ladies as well. And so there's never this sense for those who are followers of Jesus that somehow being single is a second-rate thing. In fact, the Bible holds singleness up very highly. And that's one of the reasons why, again, around here, we value you whatever stage of life you're at, whether you're single or married. We just know God's got a purpose and a plan in your life, and you're so important and welcome around here. It's also why we encourage everyone, single and married, to be involved in some sort of community around our church because we are created and designed to be in relationship. But that being said, one of the most profound, one of the most powerful relationships that a person can enter into is marriage. And this is also God's idea. Love, sex, romance, I mean, all of that kind of stuff, that all comes from the mind of God. It's, it's his idea. You know, marriage wasn't some sort of thing that evolved 50,000 years ago in ancient Mesopotamia to deal with, you know, civic litigation issues. Is something that God built into our DNA, which means that you can go to any part of this planet, any part of the seven or eight billion people who live here. And one of the most common threads that, that winds its way through every culture and through all of history is this idea of marriage. And since God designed it and God blesses it, that means that God knows how it's supposed to function. And, and, and yet somehow, especially in our day, we lose sight of what that is. And, and so today and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to go back and ground ourselves in a biblical understanding of what marriage is in particular and what relationships are about in general. So when, when God first created woman, when the first marriage took place, God said this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, the word that is used there, the, the word one, that's a Hebrew word, ikad, and it's more like, oh, one. It, it actually has a, it, there's a, there's a depth to it. There's, a, there's a, a gravitas to that word. When you put that word ikad together with the, the, the Hebrew word flesh, it has this idea of, of fused together at the deepest levels. See, marriage is about two lives between a, a husband and a wife fused together at the deepest levels. It's a profound picture of what marriage is. 
And in fact, this same term, this same word applies to God. There's a prayer that the, that the Hebrew people pray regularly. Even to this day, it's called the Shema. And it, it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Ikad. And it's this thing that says God is fused together at the deepest levels. And so marriage gives us a glimpse, just a, a hint of what this kind of goodness or oneness rather looks like. The question is then, how does this look in day-to-day -day life? I mean, what does marriage actually look like when it's lived out? And, and throughout the centuries and in different cultures, there have been different views about what marriage is about. Uh, through much of the history of Western culture and, and still today in much of Eastern culture, marriage has got this kind of idea that it's a, it's a social contract between families. Marriage is really about family and connections and having children. And, and so the, the emphasis is not so much on romance and sex and, 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 and sort of this deep emotional love as it is about duty and self-sacrifice and, and playing the, the role that is assigned to you in this thing. And, and if you end up with sort of romance and, and, uh, and love, that's kind of like a bonus, like way to go, you, you lucky dog that was thrown in too, right? But that's not the primary thing. Now, on the other end of the spectrum is what our culture today in the Western world that we live in has the primary view that marriage is about, which is that it is primarily about sex and romance. And underneath that is this desire for self-fulfillment. So, so marriage in our culture today is seen as really a contract between two people who are, who are looking to find self-fulfillment through their connection with one another. Which means that when people enter into marriage, they're looking either consciously or subconsciously for a partner who, who, who will fulfill all of their needs and, and desires, but who won't demand too much of them, right? I mean, they're looking for someone that's kind of low maintenance and... and and doesn't want them to change a lot, but who will fulfill everything that they need and desire in their life. Which, which when you think about it, puts an, amount, an intense amount of pressure upon the two people in a marriage. In fact, it's one of the reasons why so often these days people find it hard to find the, the right person. I mean, I read about a guy, his buddy was with him. Uh, he was on a dating app and, they, you know, they're looking, he was looking to see if there was a girl that would sort of suit him. And, and they found this girl who was a great match. I mean, she was attractive. She was outgoing. She loved sports, which she loved. She was, you know, all the things that he liked. And, and, and he said, no, I don't like it. And his buddy said, what? Well, what's wrong? And he said, I don't like her because she likes the Red Sox and I don't. Like, really, that's the reason you decide not to. I mean, but it speaks to this underlying thing that says, I shouldn't even have to change or adjust the team that we cheer for when I'm looking for the right person. It's also one of the reasons why so many people enter marriage so excited and in such deep love and yet a few years later exited so angry and so disillusioned. Because see, what our culture gives us when it says that this is the essence of marriage is just utterly unrealistic and unachievable expectations for what a marriage is all about. Now, the biblical view of marriage is much deeper and much more nuanced than either of those particular views. On the one hand, the Bible defines love as, 
uh, as a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other, which puts love in this sort of end of the spectrum, right? I mean, there is something about sacrificial love and duty and commitment. And in fact, lots of people know about marriage, but they don't, they don't know the purpose of marriage. I mean, they have an idea what marriage is, but what's the purpose of marriage? And, and, and the Bible addresses this, and we're going to talk about this next week. At the same time, the Bible also talks about love and romance. In fact, this whole thing about sex, I mean, the Bible gets such a bad rap about it. And yet, it turns out that when you read the Bible, sex is God's idea. It's by his design. In fact, it is so vital, it's so important that there's an entire book of the Bible the Song of Solomon, that is all about sex and romance and, and sex. I mean, the Bible and God hold sex in such high, high regard. It's an important part of marriage. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that down the road as well. But between these two, between sort of duty and sacrificial commitment and sex and romance is a third aspect of marriage that the Bible holds up highly, and that's friendship. In fact, there's a place in the, in the uh, wisdom literature where uh, it refers to uh, a person's spouse and it uses this, uh, this word, it's the word aloop. And it's a Hebrew word that is translated as companion or as best friend. You see, it's this idea that your spouse should be your closest friend. In fact, this is one of the reasons that God created marriage so that you could walk through life, through all of life, with your best friend at your side, with the person who knows you better than anyone else and walks with you through it all, even more than your mother, right? I mean, that, that's the friendship that the Bible talks about. And, and while our culture acknowledges that this is part of it, it hardly celebrates it. I mean, what our culture celebrates is the the love and the romance the, 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 and the sex, right? I mean, you think of any of the songs that you hear on the radio or any of the rom-coms that you watch, it's all about the, 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 the excitement of attraction and the thrill of the chase and the elation of, of discovering someone who likes you and you like them and, and the sex. And, and, and those are, I mean, those are good things in the right place. And in fact, when you're dating and in the first early months or years of marriage, that's part of the whole thing. But eventually, eventually those feelings begin to fade. They always do. And if your view of marriage comes from our culture, that this is the definition and the foundation of a marriage, eventually as those feelings fade, you begin to wonder if maybe you made a mistake. If maybe you married the wrong person. In fact, uh, John Mark Comer in his book Loveology is a great book. I mean, he, he writes about... His experience in marriage. Here's what he says. A few years into our marriage, the electric feelings started to fade. My nervous system lost its hypersensitivity. My heart valve readjusted. The vertigo went away. It didn't take long to figure out that we were different people. Very different. I'm introverted, type A, driven and high strung. She's uber social, laid back, phlegmatic and goes with the flow we started driving each other crazy. I started having second thoughts. I was defining love as deep feelings of affection, and my love was fading. And that scared me to death. I'm an idealist, 
Good enough doesn't cut it for me. I want my life to be spectacular. But my marriage was fast becoming ordinary. I wasn't okay with that. Questions started to haunt my thoughts. Did we make a mistake? We were so young. Did we jump the gun? Are we really right for each other? Why don't I feel the way I used to? What's wrong with me? I was sailing without a rudder, blown off course by my doubts and capsized by my fears. In hindsight, my crisis of faith was based on a faulty understanding of marriage. It wasn't that my marriage was in trouble. It was more like my unrealistic expectations were in trouble. 90% of the problem was in my head. You see, this is what happens for, for most couples. I mean, if you understand what marriage is about, if you think, you know, that... It, Marriage is primarily about these feelings of love and romance, and you lack a solid biblical foundation on which to to ground your marriage. Then you begin to have a crisis of faith when the feelings begin to fade, and that other person begins to drive you crazy. And you begin to think that maybe, maybe you married the wrong person. But as Duke University ethics professor Stanley Hauer was famously pointed out, Everyone marries the wrong person. Here's what he has to say. Listen. Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes that marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. Now, hang on, hang on. He's going to explain what he means. Here's what he says. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means that we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Huh. Now listen, don't misunderstand what he's saying here. He isn't saying that you can marry anyone, just find the first warm body that you can because it'll be the wrong person anyway. No, no, no. You, you should look for a good fit. But, but what he is saying is that this fantasy that you'll find the perfect person who meets all of your needs and demands nothing of you and will just simply fulfill you and satisfy your, your needs so that you can become whole and happy, that's a myth. There is no such person like that. Nobody marries the perfect person. Because you see, when you first fall in love, you think that you love that person, but you don't really. What you love is the idea of that person. It takes years and years to find out who that person truly is. And in that process, you have to learn to love what he calls the the stranger that you have been married to. You say, oh, this is who I'm married to? I didn't know. But you can't know until you've been married to them for years. And, And so that forces you along the way to make all kinds of changes and to grow in all kinds of ways that you didn't expect and for them to do the same. And that's why the marriage vows that you make on your wedding day are so very important. 
In fact, it's one of the reasons why statistics consistently show that people who cohabitate before they get married are much more likely to end up getting divorced. Because, you see, when you, when you make those vows at the beginning of the marriage, they, they, they cement you together and they provide the security and the space for you to become real. To have your real self become known and for the, not have, the, have to worry about the other person running screaming out of the marriage when they find out who you really are, not just the best foot that you put forward when you were dating. And out of that, when you have that kind of strength and stability that comes with your vows, that allows true love to grow. And over time, if you go keep at it, the, the result is you end up with a beautiful, a deep, not, not perfect, nobody gets a perfect marriage, but a beautiful, deep, joy-filled marriage to your best friend. But not because you married the right person, because that person never existed. Which means that your marriage is going to take a lot of work. Which is another myth that our culture has about marriage. Which says this, well, if I love the other person, it shouldn't be so hard. It should just, it should just the, the love should just naturally flow. Just like in the movies. Because we all know the movies are a true picture of reality, right? But really, I mean, think about this. Does that apply anywhere else in life? I mean, just, if someone came to you and said, I want to be a top-level NHL hockey player. I can't understand why it's so hard. Why I have to practice? I mean, it should just come naturally to me. You look at him like, dude, get a grip. Of course it's going to be hard. If you want to be good at that, you're going to have to work hard at it, no matter how much natural talent you have. Or someone says to you, well, you know, I just want to run a large, very successful business, and I'm passionate about it, and I love what I do, but I just find there's so many obstacles along the way. There's so much work involved. You're like, duh. Give your head a shake, of course. See, anything worth doing, anything worth having, anything that is good and beautiful, it takes work. And the same is true in marriage. Don't look at someone that has a great marriage and say, well, lucky them, they just fell into it. No, no, no. They have a good marriage. They worked at it. And in fact, the studies, the, the, the scientific social studies that they do show the same thing. Uh, the longitudinal studies that they do that look at marriage over years and years and years have found that even marriages that are struggling, even people that are unhappy in marriage, two-thirds of people that are unhappy in marriage, if they hang on for five years, if they don't get divorced for five years, they end up being happy. In fact, the studies show that most people are happy in the marriage and those who don't, if they, if they, if they keep going, end up being happy in the end. But it takes work. Any good friendship requires work and, and maintenance, whether, whether that friendship is in a marriage or just a friendship with the people around you. And it's amazing. It's amazing how often people just assume that, that a good friendship, a good marriage should just kind of naturally happen. It doesn't. It takes work. It requires intentionality. And so what I'm going to tell you next is not rocket science. What I'm going to tell you next, you're going to be like, yeah, I know, I know. But I'm going to tell it to you because I want you to do an inventory in your life when it comes to your friendships. And if you're married, when it comes to your friendship with your spouse. Here's four things that friends do. Number one, friends talk. Friends talk regularly and they talk deeply. 
Not every time. I mean, they joke around and they laugh. And they, but, but if you have genuine friendship, there are times when they go deep. When you get past the surface and you talk about what you really think and what you really feel about something and, and what matters to you and what brings you really joy and what causes you deep grief in your life. And you can have those conversations via text. You can do it over the phone. But they're best when you do them in person. You know, a couple of years ago, Nula said to me, we should get a hot tub. And I said, that's a terrible idea. Because me being me, all I could think of was like how much work it's going to take and how much it's going to cost and blah, blah. I'm definitely the glass half empty in our marriage. She, on the other hand, she's glass half full. She's like, think of the connections. Think of what we do. So we got a hot tub. And you know what? I mean, we, that's been so good for us. We go in that hot tub a couple of times a week and half an hour. And you know what? You can't take your phone in the hot tub. Or you probably shouldn't. I mean, you you know, you drop it and it's game over, right? And you can't do the dishes when you're in the hot tub and, and the kids don't really love it. So it's just me and her. And man, it's so good. We just talk. We just, we just connect. And the question for you is this. I mean, I don't know how it is for you, but, but here's the question. Are you regularly talking to your friend or your friends in person? And maybe it's going for a walk and, and maybe it's just sitting around the, the table for an extra 20 minutes or half hour after supper is over. Or, or maybe it's, it's after the kids are in bed. But, but here's what friends do. Friends talk. It's the first thing. But, but the, then the second thing is this. Friends do stuff together. They don't just talk. Friends do things with one another. John Stott, theologian and pastor, who, by the way, was single his entire life and lived a rich, deep, full life. Someone said to him, what causes you to come alive? And he said, three things. Just give me life. He says, public worship, being in nature, and hanging out with my friends. But when he talked about his friends, it wasn't like, well, we just sit and chit-chat. He said, no, no, we do things together. We have fun. It just brings life to, to our relationship. And if you're married, you should do that. Doing, doing stuff together with your spouse is called going on dates. And you should date your spouse. You should do things together. To get away from the regular grind and the chores and the, and the pressures and just go do something fun. I mean, you should go hiking or, or watch a movie or, or watch TV together or go out for dinner or, or play a game or just do errands. I mean, you know, one of the, the couples that we know that has like just the strongest friendship in their marriage. It's just so obvious. They, they told us that they went on a date to Home Depot. Now, not exactly the most romantic date, but I know that they do all kinds of other dates together. And they have this strong, rich, deep friendship. It's just so clear in their marriage. It's a beautiful thing. And of course, this is important at all stages of marriage. And it's definitely more challenging when you have young children. And yet it's important there too. You know, when you have young children, it's like, oh man, we're so tired already. And, and now we got to find a babysitter or get our folks to come or, or swap with another family. And, and yet if you go out on a date, oh man, you remember like, oh yeah, this is a person that I love. We have so much fun together. You find out what adults, uninterrupted adult conversation feels like again. You come back and say, okay, we're good to go again. I mean, you should date your spouse because that's what friends do. They do things together. And if you're single, you should 
do stuff with your friends too. It's just not called dating. But it's just as important. Friends do things together. So are you doing that? I mean, it takes work. It takes intentionality for sure. It'd be much easier to, you know, just spend the evening scrolling through your social feed or, or, or put a movie on Netflix. But the, the return on investment in doing something like that is profound. Okay, that was number two. Number three, friends eat together. There's something powerful about eating together. When the Bible talks about community, when it talks about relationships, almost invariably it includes food and feasting and, and eating together. And there's something about food that is not only good for your body, but when you eat it together with others, it is good for your soul. And these days, I mean, we're so busy that it's often tempting and, and sometimes it's necessary to just grab something on the run. But there's something so powerful about regularly sitting down together and sharing a meal with friends. And of course, if you're married with your, with your closest friend, with your best friend. And maybe if you can, without the distraction of phones or the TV. So here's a question. Are you eating together regularly with the people in your life that you love? Is it a regular rhythm for you? And then finally, number four, friends encourage one another. Encouragement is like, like relational oxygen. You know, I once went and visited a buddy of mine. He lives in Colorado. He took me hiking up in the, in the, in the Rockies there. We're hiking at like 12,000, 13,000 feet above sea level. Now for a boy who lives at about sea level and doesn't do a lot of hiking, I thought I was going to die. I mean, there's air up there, but not much. It's like, <laughs> and that's how a relationship feels if there isn't regular encouragement and affirmation within a, in a relationship. Proverbs says this, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life in your relationships are in the power of your tongue. When was the last time that you told your husband that you think he's a good man and that you respect him and that you know that he is good at what he does? When was the last time that you told your wife how much you love her? And how good she is at whatever it is that she does. And that you think that she is a, a great friend and an amazing lover. I mean, do that however works for you. But, but are you telling them those kinds of things? Are you telling them regularly the things that are good in them, that, that, that you love about them? Are you encouraging them regularly? Because see, that's what, that's what friends do. And, and if you're talking to friends who... Are, you aren't married to, are, are you doing the same thing? I mean, are you telling them how much you appreciate their friendship? How, how fun it is hanging out with them? How you appreciate that you feel safe enough to tell them what's really going on in your life? That, that you just appreciate them. I mean, if, you, if you're a guy telling another guy, you might have to insult them first so it doesn't get too touchy-feely. But, but then you should tell them, like, dude, I really appreciate our friendship. It's powerful. It's encouraging. It's what, it, what builds friendship. It's what friends do. They encourage one another. Death and life are in the power of your tongue. So these are the things that, that, that friends do that take work. They're intentional, but have profound return when you do them. But what if you don't feel like doing it? Well, what if, 
What if it turns out that the stranger that you find yourself married to is actually driving you crazy and you're not sure that you're actually married to the right person and you just don't feel like it? That's a good question. That's a legitimate question. You know, one of Jesus' most famous teachings, really a command, was this. Love your neighbor. Now, it's interesting that he doesn't say, you know, have warm feelings towards your neighbor or feel affection towards your neighbor or like your neighbor. Instead, he says, love your neighbor. Because you see, you can't command your feelings, but you can command your actions. Which means that when he commands us to love our our neighbor, he's not talking about feelings, he's talking about our actions. And this is important because, you know, our our emotions are never consistent, are they? Our our emotions are this, this... this complex interaction of sort of physical and psychological and social factors. And sometimes we're up and sometimes we're down and sometimes we know why and sometimes we don't know why. It's hard to to manage our emotions, but you can always control your actions. And so when we don't feel like loving the other person that we're married to, we should act with love towards them. We should just act with love. Now, sometimes people say, well, that's not love that, because it's not authentic. It's not coming from my heart. So I'm, I'm faking it. But in fact, that's not true. If the only time that you love the other person is when they make you feel good, then that's not real love. Then all you're doing them is paying them back for, 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 for making you feel good, for the thrill that they bring you, for the ego they, they, they boost in you, for the experiences they bring you. That's inauthentic love. Authentic love. Genuine love is to love that person even when you don't feel it. Here's the thing about doing this. And it's a biblical principle that has been proven a million times over. And that's this. When you act with love towards someone, slowly but surely, the feelings begin to follow afterwards. They catch up with your behavior. See, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the German theologian, he, he was in prison at one point and he heard that his niece was getting married and so he wrote, he wrote to her and one of the things that he said to her was this. It's not your love that upholds marriage, but from now on it's marriage that upholds your love. It's not love that upholds your marriage, it's marriage that upholds your love. In other words, it's not the romantic feelings of love that you have towards somebody that becomes the foundation of your marriage. It's a recipe for disaster. Rather, it's your marriage, the commitment that you have to them, that becomes the foundation out of which flows the romantic feelings and the friendship in your life. And here's the result of of choosing that kind of a marriage. When over the years someone has seen you at your worst, when they know the flaws and the quirks and the insecurities and the brokenness in your life, along with the strengths, but when they know all of those things and yet they commit themselves to you in sacrificial love, that's love. That's genuine, true love. You know, our greatest fear is that if someone actually got to know who we really are, that they would run screaming out of the room. But to be known, not on a superficial level like on social media or, or, you know, in the first 
couple of months or years when we're dating or newly married, but to be known at the deepest level and fully and to have someone nevertheless give them lives sacrificially to us. I mean, that's what the definition of true love is. And when you're loved like that, I mean, that, that humbles you. Takes away any kind of sense of self-righteousness. Like, wow. And that, that liberates you. There's a freedom to know, I am loved. And there's a strength there. That no matter what comes your way, you're like, yeah, it's hard. It's difficult. But he or she, they've got my back, right? And in its purest form, this is what it means to be loved by God, Right? I mean, he knows us at the deepest level. He knows you when no one else is watching. He knows the thoughts that you only have in your own head. He, he knows your weaknesses and your insecurities and your brokenness, and he knows your sinfulness. And yet, he still gives his life for you. I mean, the Apostle Paul writes this. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, that's love. And because we are created in his image, we're called to love our friends and, and in particular our spouse in the same way. I mean, to love with a sacrificial commitment to the good of someone else. Back in the book of Genesis, 22 chapters after God first said it is not good for man to be alone, it tells the story of the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. Now, in that culture, in those days, marriages were arranged and Abraham had sent his servant to, to find a wife and he found Rebecca and brought her back. But when they met to, to each other, there was this, there's this line. It goes like this. It says, she became his wife and he loved her. And Orthodox Jews love to point out the order of that sentence. This marriage, it, it, though far from perfect, it was arranged by Abraham, really by God. And, and and the love started after the wedding day. In fact, there's a saying about marriage that the, the, the Jews in the East tell to the Christians in the West. It goes like this. It says, we put cold soup on the fire and it becomes slowly warm. You put hot soup into a cold plate and it becomes so, slowly cold. Now, I don't know if I totally agree with that, but, but you understand the sentiment of, of that saying. If you want a good marriage... It's not just about finding the perfect soulmate who fulfills all of your needs and it should just all come naturally. Ah, that, that's not going to work because there is no such thing. That's a myth. That, that's a lie that will wreck your marriage. No, good marriage is about learning to love your spouse for who they are. And that's hard. It takes work. But it's so rich. I mean, if you talk to a, a couple that has chosen this path and they're 20 or 30 or 50 years in and you ask them to tell you, they'll say, oh, when we dated, it was so fun and there was romance and, and excitement. It was thrilling. It was so good. But now 20, 30, 50 years later, after we've shared our dreams and, and bored, borne the burdens of, of this life together, after we've fought like crazy and, and made up and repented and, 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 and after we have have understood who each other is and still committed to one another. Oh, oh, the love that we have now is so much deeper and so much richer than what we had when we first started out. That's a good marriage. That's what marriage is about. Listen, I, I don't know 
you know, where you're at today. But if your marriage is not going well, don't be discouraged. They go through seasons and you just keep your eyes on Jesus. You keep living according to these principles, even if your spouse isn't there yet. And you just watch what God does. And if your marriage is going well, you just drive this deeper. Keep investing. Keep growing because it leads to a rich and a meaningful life together. This is how God has designed marriage. Okay, we're going to talk next week about the purpose of marriage and after that about sex and romance. So come on back. Let's keep talking. But let me end right now by praying for you. Well, God, thank you for the relationships in our life. God, you designed us for relationships. We need them. We long for them. And God, when they're, rich, when they're good, they're so rich. And when they're hard, they're so hard. God, help us to live in light of what you teach, in light of the scriptures, in light of the, the pattern that you designed for marriage and for relationships. And Lord, give us the strength to, to, to put in the work, to Keep our eyes on you and to allow you to work as we follow what you call us to. So we thank you and we praise you. We commit our relationships, our marriages, and our friendships to you this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for joining us today. It's a new year. We just encourage you, make it just a regular habit to come, to join us. Join us online, join us in person, but let's continue to walk together as we follow Jesus. I want to send you uh, again with these words uh, from the Apostle Paul. He says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power of work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. See you next week.